Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, welcome everyone to the Determined Truth Podcast. My name is Rob Dalrymple. Unfortunately, my co-host Vinny Angelo is not able to be with us today, but we are extremely excited to have with us Michael Gorman. Uh, Michael is the uh, Raymond E. Brown Professor of Biblical Studies and Theology at St. Mary's Seminary and University. He specializes primarily in the letters, theology, and spirituality of the Apostle Paul, but he's also done work in the Book of Revelation, and and he is, uh, I think, one of the leading New Testament scholars that we have, especially in the American church. He has an MDiv and PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary, and today's discussion is going to center primarily around his book, Cruciformity, Paul's Narrative Spirituality of the Cross, the 20th anniversary edition just came out last week, uh, but he's also the author of numerous books of uh, Paul, the Apostle of the Crucified Lord, and Reading Paul. And uh, so it is a pleasure to have you here with us today, Michael. Thank you for joining us. Rob, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. And we were just talking right before we started that the 20th anniversary edition just came out last week. What is the difference for those who are, are, are listening or watching of the 20th anniversary edition and the, and the original edition that came out in 2001? Yeah, thanks. The text of the book is essentially the same. It is the same, actually. The editor, uh, the publisher has added a foreword by a younger scholar named Nijay Gupta, who's a rising star in in Pauline studies and has been influenced a lot by uh, that book and, and other similar works. And then I was asked to write an afterword, a, a piece at the end, kind of an essay at the end, which is, um, the, the major new thing in the book is 25 pages of reflections on the way the book has been received, criticized occasionally, its influence in the academy and in the church. So that was kind of fun to write, to look back on 20 years of, of reception history, as we call it in, in scholarship. Yeah, wonderful. I would want to let the listeners and, and those watching on YouTube know, right, this is perhaps, in my opinion, one of the most significant conversations we can have because I think your work, Michael, on understanding Paul and cruciformity that we're going to define and clarify for those mm-hmm. who are listening uh, is fundamental to the call of the New Testament of, of discipleship and the call of Christ and for the shaping of the church, especially as the church engages culture and society, uh, our witness, our testimony. I think this is phenomenal. And I want to encourage the listeners to maybe have their, their Bibles handy. And if you're listening on a podcast, you may want to just listen to this a couple of times. And maybe the second time you listen to it, just hit the pause button a few times and open up the scriptures that we might be discussing. Uh, this is going to be a profound conversation, so I want to encourage you to go there. So let's begin by, by, by noting, you know, what is cruciformity? You, you, in your introduction, uh, you cite 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, which says, For I've determined to know nothing except you. Let me say it again. I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified which you note should be translated, quote, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and that is Jesus Christ crucified. So let's begin by talking about crucifixion in the, in the Roman world and what that means, because I think that really helps us understand cruciformity even, even more so. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think most people know that crucifixion is not a pleasant experience, obviously, but I don't think most people realize that in the ancient world, it was considered to be such a horrible event that you don't talk about it in in polite company. You think of it, whether you're Jewish or Roman or Greek, you think of it as the worst 
possible scandalous, offensive, shameful punishment anybody could ever undergo. And uh, it was used by the Romans, not only as a form of torturous death, but as a deterrent to say, if, if you challenge the Roman system, this is where you're going to end up. And that was a very effective um, uh, form of deterrence. And sometimes many, many people were crucified at the same time along the road so everybody could see it on public display. And sometimes people gathered and delighted in it, just like people in this country delighted in lynchings, uh, you know, in, in the, um, well, unfortunately, still yeah. not that not that distant future, uh, right. distant past. Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's important to realize, to, to, so to proclaim a crucified savior, messiah, God of any kind is laughable in the ancient world and was laughed at. We, we have a piece of graffiti from the second century that I'm sure you know about, that shows uh, some Roman mocking a, a Christian figure by putting a, a figure of a donkey on a cross saying that this Christian named Alex is worshiping his deity. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think that Paul really is trying to get at then in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 2 verse 2? I want to know Christ and his crucifixion. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to focus on Paul is all about Jesus Christ the crucified and resurrected Lord. So it's not the cross as an element of torture or deterrence or Roman power that's the issue for him. It is the fact that the one who came to rescue Israel and the entire world sent by God to do that, did it by means of death on a Roman cross, which is complete nonsense. So that's why Paul says, what looks like foolishness to the world is the power and wisdom of God. So he, Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, the crucified one, who is of course also the resurrected one. The re the, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the crucifixion doesn't have any significance except it's the death of a would-be Messiah. Um, it, it makes you almost wonder sometimes when you think about this too, how did Christianity even survive let alone you know why would anyone believe this message when you when you put it in this context of this is just foolishness this is laughability and you know, for the jews it's a scandal for the romans it's it's a scandal it's amazing that people followed this you're you're right and the virtues that go along with that meekness humility right. they were not virtues in the ancient world christianity introduces i mean obviously among jews humility before god is is a virtue but in terms of the the pagan world, humility is not a virtue. Meekness is not a virtue. And yet these are what's associated with uh, the crucified Christ. And even in his resurrected state, he, he continues to be the meek, uh, the self-giving, the humble one who uh, enables his followers to be the same or similar at least. Yeah, this is actually, you brought this out in your book and I've, in a number of your books that this is a large context of Second Corinthians that they were challenging Paul saying, look, you're meek, you work with your own hands, you do manual labor. These are all shameful things in our culture exactly. and our context. And Paul and says, I'm embracing this. Yeah, yeah, I'm embracing them because that's how I, in my context, can participate in the, the ongoing life of the crucified and resurrected Lord. Yeah, but I, I think since we def defined crucifixion a bit, 
Um, I may be jumping ahead, but it, it might sure. be good to define the word cruciformity itself. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next. Yeah. Okay. That's not a. It's not a word that everybody knows. I mean, I think they know the concept. So the word cruciform simply means cross shape. It was originally an architectural term. So we talk about churches, especially cathedrals, that have this kind of cross-shaped form to them. Anybody who's been to Europe or the National mm -hmm. Cathedral in Washington, D.C., they and other churches, for that matter, they've, they've seen cross-shaped churches. That architectural term, uh, especially the adjective form, cruciform, became, in the 20th century, a way to describe Christian discipleship as somehow embodying the virtues that we see embodied in Christ in his self-giving, loving death on the cross. The noun, adding the I-T-Y, cruciformity, simply means cross-shaped life or cross-shaped spirituality. It, it's a word, as I said, not everybody knows, but I think people know the concept. I mean, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. That's the beginning of the cruciform life, the beginning of cruciform spirituality, the beginning of cruciformity. I think, however, if someone were to hear this word for the first time or, or contemplate one on your definition of it and description of it, they might think, oh, this means that I must go and suffer at the hands of pagan oppressors. That's what taking up my cross looks like. But but it doesn't. It means it's much more practical than that. Explain, explain that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that when people, the first thing people think about when they think about the cross is the suffering of Jesus. But the suffering is really the result of what Jesus was doing when he became human and went all the way to the point of death on the cross. That is to say, this is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, this is Christ emptying himself, humbling himself, giving himself over for us as an act of love. So the first thing about the cross is not from Paul's point of view, and, and I think from the entire New Testament, is not its suffering. It is its act of, of divine love and, and of specifically of divine love shown in, in Christ's self-giving. So in, in the book, I, I talk about four aspects of, of cruciform living or conformity, conformity to Christ crucified, the traditional theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. So cross-shaped faith, cross-shaped hope, cross-shaped love. But I add a fourth one, partly because it's so important in the modern age, uh, cross-shaped power. Mm. What does it mean to be powerful? From Paul's point of view, in terms of interpreting Jesus, it has to do with the cross. Yeah, and you flesh out and go, do a wonderful job then of explaining how 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love, it's not self-seeking, it seeks the interests of others and how that wraps into Philippians 2, if, if you're listening on the podcast, maybe stop and look at Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and how Jesus was uh, divine and humbled himself and, and became obedient even to death, taking the nature of, of, of humanity and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and, and how that is the model of cruciformity for us. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting that in that text, Paul begins, as you said, with Christ at the highest point, and we end up at, just in three short verses at, at the lowest point. Right. So not only does he become human, theologically we call that the incarnation, not only does he 
go to the point of death. Theologically, we call that the atonement or you know, other words like that. But he goes to the death reserved for criminals, insurrectionists, terrorists, people against the, the Roman state, slaves. He goes to the point of death on a cross. So from the absolute highest to the absolute lowest, and then God exalts that and recognizes it. But, but that becomes then, in Paul's estimation, the model of Christian living that can be played out in, a, in an infinite variety of ways. But the way I describe it in, in the book, and I think this is indebted completely to Paul, <laughs> that you have, a, you have a certain status that you might have, in Christ's case, divinity. In spite of that, or as I'll come back to in a moment and say, maybe because of that, in spite of that status, you don't exploit it for your own advantage, as Philippians 2 says, but instead, looking out for the interests of others, you engage in acts of self-giving, uh, life-giving love. So although Christ was in the form of God, he did not count that equality as something to exploit, but gave himself, emptied himself, humbled himself, and as you said, Paul does this, tries to do something similar. He has the status of apostle. According to 1 Corinthians 9, he has the right to be paid for his services and to take a wife with him. And he said, those are rights. They, they're guaranteed by scripture. They're even guaranteed by the teaching of Jesus. But I have for, forsaken those rights in the interest of spreading the gospel as an act of love in Christ-like way. Yeah, and we're going to continue to, to go deeper into this because I think sure. this is so significant. But let me come up for, let me ask the question first that later in the book, you talk about how living this cruciform life, and we need to continue to unpack what that means. It's not optional. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not something that Christians say, hey, you know, now that you're in the faith, by the way, this would be a good idea. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you mean by it. it's not optional. Yeah. Well, I think one thing I like to say a lot is that for many people, the cross is the source of their salvation. That's how they think of it. Christ died for my sins. That's how Paul thinks of it too. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. But Paul also believes that the cross, in addition to being the source of our salvation, is the shape of our salvation. And that goes right back to Jesus, as I've already said. You know, take up your cross and follow me does not mean literally get crucified, although sometimes that happens. But basically, it means welcoming children and uh, being a servant to others and washing disciples' feet and washing the feet of the world, all these kinds of self-giving, um, life-giving acts of love. But they're not optional because when we come to faith in Christ and when we are justified, as in use Paul's language, or when we're baptized, to use Paul's language and the language of lots of other New Testament writers, we are baptized, as Paul says in Romans 6, into his death and resurrection. So get rid of that religious word for a minute, baptized. We are plunged. We are immersed. We are dipped permanently into this reality of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, yes, raised to new life. What does that new life look like? It looks like, as much as possible, the self-giving life of Jesus. So this speaks so much now, right, to the American context, because the American Christian church is, is a church that basically embraces power. Yeah, uh, We are powerful on a national scale, on an international scale. The, 
And it seems to me that when I look across the spectrum of the American church, we are not really doing really well when it comes to this cruciform life. We're, we're living this powerful world and, and, we're, and, we're, and anyone who tries to take away our, our powers or our rights, we kind of throw the book at them. Yeah, you, that's very well said, Rob. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's probably the most dangerous aspect of the Christian church in America and, and, and perhaps other places too, but I can only speak from our context. The, the church by and large, and I will say most denominations and across the theological spectrum from hyper-conservative to hyper-liberal have in various ways uh, embraced power, spiritual power, political power, and sometimes uh, even you know, military power, economic power, and it's tried to exploit it, tried to take more of it. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus calls for, it's the exact opposite of what Paul calls for. And uh, we're, we're at a serious point in, in, our, in our history where if we don't take this call of Jesus, call of Paul seriously, we're going to be in, in even worse trouble than we're in now. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Yeah, that, the, the, the way Paul, I'm, I'm doing some work in Second Corinthians now for, for, for and, and your book has been really helpful as I've gone through it and just look at the index and, and, and read and read and read. And it's one of those, you know, if we were to ask people today, you know, why do you go to the church you go to, you know, what attracted you to that church? Let's say you come in with good, it's often because, oh, the great preacher or because of this or the donuts or what. And, and Paul's answer is, look, I might be short and ugly, you know, as the, as the apocryphal literature says, he's short and ugly, and I'm not an eloquent speaker, and, and I don't carry this, and I don't carry this. And you're like, well, Paul would not make a very good church leader to, in our modern world, would he? No, I, th I think he would be, uh, in many contexts, he would be thrown out as being not only ineffective, but inappropriate. I mean, if you, you got to grab that power and show your influence and get in line with City Hall and, and, and show that the church can have some power in, in city hall or in state government or national government, whatever it is. And, and uh, Paul would say, let's put the brakes on that folks and look very carefully at what it means to inhabit a cruciform uh, God. It, yeah. but, but I think it's also important to say, this is not really denying power as much as it is redefining power. Right, right, right. Yeah. excellent. It's, it's, it's cross-shaped power, which is very potent. Uh, right. I, I think we see that from Matthew to Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. When Jesus was on the cross, the epitome of power was that he could have gotten down, but that when he's trying, hey, you saved others, now save yourself. If he does save himself, he condemns them all. And so that's a wonderful display of power. Say, I'm, I'm going to use my power in love for you. And I think that's exactly what your book's trying to, trying to point out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now you talk also that, uh, that the idea of cruciformity is um, not necessarily imitation of Christ, but participation with Christ. Explain what, what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, in the history of, of Christian spirituality, there is a long and an important tradition of imitating Jesus, whether it's the famous work of Thomas Akempis, right. uh, imitation of Christ, or what we had in the 19th century, um, the idea of, of what would Jesus do, and, and even, that even becoming a kind of a a fad back in, was it the 90s? I don't remember, 80s, yeah, 90s, yeah. with the bracelets and all that. Um, and 
the, the problem with that, I, I think there are several problems with that, but perhaps the main problem with that is, um, first of all, we're not Jesus. So there is a sense in which to imitate Jesus is not only impossible, but potentially dangerous because you can begin to take on a kind of messianic complex. But more significantly, or at least as significantly, the idea of imitating Jesus is the idea that someone at a distance is to be looked at and somehow you know, pick certain characteristics and imitate them. But the spirituality of, of baptism, of participation, of, of immersion into Christ, and faith is, is similarly being immersed into this reality and into this person, is that we now live in him and he lives in us. Christ in me, the hope and glory, Christ in you, Paul says, Christ in you all, actually, plural, the hope of glory. Or as he says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, speaking representatively. Or Romans, talking in, in Romans 8 about the spirit as well as Christ being in us and us being in the spirit and in Christ. So that there is a, a power at work that we allow and we have to cooperate with to work within us and among us. I mean, that's another problem with, with contemporary Christian spirituality. It's very individualistic, very me-oriented. Mm -hmm. And Paul's spirituality, Jesus' uh, discipleship calls are very corporate. Y'all follow me. Y'all are the light of the world. Even the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us yeah. this day. Give us yeah. this day. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 mm -hmm. Corinthians 3. And, and part of the problem, I, I joke with my students about this all the time, is we just need to learn Spanish right, or Greek or some language that has a difference between singular and plural use so that you know that Jesus and Paul are talking about ustedes and not about two. Mm. You also do a wonderful job of noting that this is not about human effort to, to accomplish these things, but it's actually the work of the Spirit within us. Yeah, and that's the part of participation, that the Christ in us, Spirit in us is, is working these things out. And there's, there, is a, there is a tension, and I think a help, healthy and helpful one. We still have to do our part. It's not like we just sit there, you know. Uh, Paul says in, in various translations in Galatians 5 about walking in the Spirit or being guided by the Spirit. But even in Philippians 2, the idea of working out your plural salvation, which I would translate as put into practice or embody your salvation as opposed to earn it in some mm. way. Uh, how and why? Because God is at work among you, both to will and to do or to work for his good pleasure. So there's this tension or, or dynamic, I guess would be a better word, between God's work in us through the spirit, through the presence of Christ, and our necessity of, of yielding and cooperating with that divine work. And let's go a little bit further with this, because what we're, what we're not talking, again, I think a lot of us as Americans in the American churches, we look at this so individualistically. Mm -hmm. And when I'm listening to what you're saying now, I'm going, okay, this is my job. This is my task. I need to be more uh, cruciform in my life. But this is the job of the church to embody and and participate in Christ. And that is the means of our witness to the world. I mean, this is what the gospel is about, is our witness to the world is done when we also live as Christ lived in this cruciform way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that 
one of the major contributions of Paul to our understanding of the church. So we have this individualistic piety and spirituality, and it's important to have the individual relationship with Christ. Absolutely. But, but Paul's contribution, I think, is to, to talk about not so much individuals, but bodies of people, the body of Christ, the temple of the spirit, the people of God, all these images that dominate his letters, we've, we've glossed over them often. So it's a call, yes, for us individually to be good witnesses by living out the gospel in these ways, but the church itself or churches themselves need to take this seriously. And, you know, I'll bring up a controversial issue, but I think it's an important one uh, with the masking issue in, in the time of the pandemic. I was really disappointed, and that's a, a mild word for it, to see pastors and churches and Christians doing just the opposite of what Paul or Jesus would say, I have the right not to wear a mask. I have the right to go physically into the building and I have the right to conduct this service. Well, that may be true, but the Christian gospel and the witness of the gospel is to say, even when we have certain rights, there are times for the better of others, for the common good, for the community, for the protection of the weak, that we need to say, I have the right, we have the right, but we're not going to exercise it. Instead, out of love, we're going to mask up, we're going to meet by Zoom, and we're not going to, to go to court to, to exercise our rights when we should be exercising love for the common good. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, because even if you disagree with the uh, medical community or the scientific community that says, hey, masking is saving lives. Oh, I don't, I think that's all a scam. The, the reality is that there's a society out there, a culture out there that says, hey, this is going to save lives. And, and wearing a mask then, whether you agree or disagree, is actually then a sign of love to say, well, I may not agree, but I respect the fact that, that you do think this way, and therefore I will honor that. Yeah, at the very least, yeah. One of the things that you talk about is you, you wrap this in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, the biblical definition of love, and you note that the key es essence of the biblical definition of love is that love is not self-seeking, but that it seeks the interests of others. Yeah. And that becomes the platform by which we move forward. And I remember the thought that I had, had a minute ago, and that was, it's, you brought out that when Paul is challenged about in, in Corinthians, in the Corinthian correspondences of of not being a, a great speaker, of, of working with his hands and menial labor, and, and you're you're shaming us. You're bringing shame into this community, Paul. You're supposed to be our leader. You won't even take pay from us. You must not be worthy of pay. Paul's like, if if I do the things that you're telling me, that just contradicts the gospel that I'm proclaiming. The, the gospel I'm, I'm preaching is a gospel of humility and love and sacrifice yeah. for the sake of the other, and yet you want me to be out there and be arrogant and proud and narcissistic, ultimately. I mean... Some people remind us that uh, there was a verb to Corinthianize, which yeah. uh, Paul doesn't use that verb, but he essentially creates a, a, a verbal idea that you, you can be very Corinthian and not very Christian. And I think it seems like there's a lot of Corinthianizing going on in the American church scene. We are a lot like the Corinthians. We are a competitive culture. We're an individualistic culture. We are 
a self-seeking culture, a rights-oriented culture, and that that has infused the Corinthian church and it has infused the American church. So uh, to go back to the 1 Corinthians 13 text, on a number of occasions, Paul uses, a, in 1 Corinthians 13 and elsewhere, he uses this very important expression of uh, seeking or not seeking one's own interest, rights. It, it's yeah. a variety of, of specific phrases, but the same basic idea. He uses that in 1 Corinthians 13, 5 to define love. He uses it in Philippians 2, 1 to 4, just before the poem about Christ. He uses it in other places in 1 Corinthians in, in uh, chapter 10 and 11. For him, that understanding of love as seeking not one's own interest or advantage or rights, but those of others has to be corporate because we all have needs. We all have legitimate interests, spiritual, material, otherwise, that need to be met. So it's only in a community that lives that way that I can feel free and uh, able to be self-giving to others, knowing that at the same time, others are going to look out for me as needed, not in a narcissistic way, but in a, in a healthy way, a communal health way. And um, the Corinthian and American thought is, if I don't look out for myself, nobody else will. Right. I've got to do it. And the Christian way is look out for one another, rejoice with one another, cry with one another, mm -hmm. you know, all these kinds of things. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's let's take this now and, and begin applying it to some different issues. So you go, you have a really good analysis of Ephesians 5 uh, and the discussion of male and female. And how does that weigh into the or play into the conversation of cruciformity? Yeah. That's a text that, of course, has gotten a lot of um, I would say misuse in the church over the not just decades, but centuries. And it begins in a way that we can't, in a technical way uh, on this broadcast, go into the text itself, but it's very clear from the text that Paul begins with a definition of, of being filled with the spirit mm. that includes singing and giving thanks and so forth, and also includes as one of those aspects of being filled with the spirit, mutual subordination or as a couple of people have said, another way of looking at it is mutual elevation. Mm. That is to say, I elevate you right. and you elevate me. So it's an, I think that's not wrong because mutual subordination can sound like mutual doormatting or something. Mm. But, but the idea is we are elevating, uh, we, when we elevate others, we are taking a lower place ourselves but they are also elevating us. As long as we're not elevating others so that, so that we can be elevated ourselves, right? Correct, yeah. no, it's yeah. not the purpose. That's no. correct, yeah. But, but it's a mutuality. But the idea is, this is, this is one aspect of the work of the spirit, this mutual mm -hmm. self-giving, subordinating to one another. Then Paul says in a way that grammatically ties this husband, if you will, motif, to that, he says, without introducing a new sentence, wives to your husbands. And then later on, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Both of those I, I suggest in the book and, and go on at, at some length are forms of 
mutual self-giving, mutual subordination, loving the other like Christ loved us. And Paul specifically in the beginning of that discussion, in end of chapter four and, and beginning of chapter five, takes each of those verbs and applies them more generally to the Christian community, specifically the idea of, of uh, self-giving love like Christ loved us and like God loved us in Christ forgiving us. So backing up, the generic Christian ethic of self-giving love, of mutual concern and subordination, mutual forgiveness, mutual sacrifice in Christ-like, God-like, spirit-inspired ways. That's the Christian norm. Right. And husbands and wives display that within marriage as a subset of the Christian community. It's not giving husbands or wives additional duties, but specific contextual similar to what they would do in the Christian community as a whole. Yeah, and it's interesting because if we take that what you just said then as as the uh, assumptions that we bring into the, you know, we always bring these assumptions into the text, but if the assumption that we bring into the text or, or the overarching narrative of the text is this this humbling of oneself for the sake of the uh, of elevating the, the other, then it almost answers the question by itself of what's the role of male female within, within the family or within the church? It's like, we already know the answer. The, the answer is that we humble ourselves for the sake of elevating the other. And, and there must be this mutual equality then in role and responsibility within, within male female. That's exactly right. And I think Paul couldn't be clearer. Part of the problem is people don't read the text carefully or don't know how to because they don't necessarily, and you can't blame people for this, they don't can't necessarily read the Greek text. Right. But I also think we have a history of most commentaries being written by, you know, white privileged men, let's face mm -hmm. it. Right, right. And some of them uh, have have perpetuated a reading of the text based on their social standing mm -hmm. or their particular point of view that's really not in the text. And okay. we need to we need to challenge that as 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 fellow interpreters. Yeah, and ironically, and I just wrote a series of, of posts on this on my on my blog site as well, that ironically, what we're actually doing when we do that is we're taking the side of Paul's opponents, the people that he's responding to in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, which appear to be men with authority that are not sure that they like the fact that women are given this roles of prominence, like, well, okay, well, well, at least make them put the, put head coverings on, you know, trying to find some way to, 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 because this isn't looking good for us in society and in culture, giving women the, the, this role and responsibility. And so when we come along and say, yeah, male, male, male headship, et cetera, we're actually taking this out of Paul's opponents. Yeah. I also think that this has something to do with power to go back to that. Exactly. And uh, there's lots of evidence right now, you know, there's, there's new books out and studies of, of the theme, I guess you'd call it in, in many uh, churches in, in America of men, especially thinking that, power is their gift, their right as, as Christian men, and they should exercise that. And that includes power over their spouses, power over their children, the power to, to exercise power in you know, civic settings or, or political settings. This is so contrary to the gospel. 
Right. It's just not what it means to be cruciform. Yeah. yeah. Right, so let's go to another one now. And Roman, you address Romans 13 and you do and, and you provide some insights that I had never even really thought of before. You argue that the text is not saying what most Western Christians think it says. You know, Romans 13 says, submit to your governing authorities because God has instituted them to, to do you good. Uh, can you help us understand that text then what, and what it means for and, and its application for today? Well, it's a complicated text for sure. Right. And it's been disputed by lots of people. But the, the main, I'll, I'll put a little plug in here too, if I may, uh, Rob. I have a commentary on Romans coming out in, in the spring or the oh. winter, I don't know, March, I think. Okay. Maybe earlier with Erdman's. And I, I go into this chapter in even more detail. But, oh, excellent. But the, the primary thing I guess I would want to say is about those seven verses themselves is it is a text about paying taxes. Mm. It's not a generic do everything the government says at all times and yield yourself over to them. That, that even imagining Paul saying that is is laughable. I mean, right. Paul's basic point is you and your bodies belong to Jesus Christ, to God. You know, we as Christians love to run to 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, the, which is the beginning of the context of Romans 13, obviously. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to whom? To Caesar? Mm. To, to the governing powers? No, to God. So the context of Romans 12, uh, Romans 13, excuse me, is Romans 12 and what follows in Romans 13 after verse 7, which is our bodies belong to God to live, to dedicate to God and to the service of God's people and to service of the world in this cruciform way. Mm -hmm. And in order not to cause any particular issue there in Rome, pay your taxes, don't engage in some kind of revolutionary behavior as some especially uh, Jewish uh, uh, people and perhaps Jewish Christians were tempted to do, but live in such a way that you can bear witness to the world and not cause these uprisings, but at the same time, not de dedicate or devote your life and your body to the service of the emperor, whoever happens to be in power. And that seems to fit really well with Mark 12 and these passages where Jesus is confronted, hey, should we pay taxes or not? As though, okay, we're going to trip him up now because if he says yes, pay taxes, then the Pharisees are going to be upset. If he says no, don't pay taxes, then the Romans are going to be upset. How's he going to get out of this conundrum? And he says, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And we think, oh, okay, therefore, you know, we compartmentalize whatever yeah. Jesus is as Jesus is and whatever. But that's not what Jesus is saying because all Jews know the psalmist says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So there's as someone's, hey, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar, but everything belongs to the Lord. And, yeah. and so, yeah, we'll maintain peace in society, but we don't have these, these dual uh, things going on. Yes, I think that's really critical. And I think that most Christians and unfortunately most pastors preach exactly mm -hmm. what you just said. I'm going to compartmentalize. I will, you know, I will give this to God, but if, if Caesar calls on me to do X, Y, and Z, I will do that without question because Romans 13 says, obey the political authorities instead of thinking about the context and right. thinking critically about what is it that God is calling us to do and to be and what belongs to Jesus, what belongs to God 
is everything but that coin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our lives and all their fullness, our bodies and all their fullness. And you can really only have this conception, this popular American evangelical conception or Christian conception, if you're in America, because you're not going to have this in your, if you're in Nazi Germany, you're not going to have this if you're in first century Rome with Nero. So the, the idea that Paul was saying something when Nero was the emperor that applies in this American Western political context is kind of almost absurd. It is. At the same time, it is, there's no doubt that Romans 13 has been misinterpreted in all kinds of contexts to compel or at least inspire Christians to go along with, with evil. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we heard Jeff Sessions when he was attorney general quote Romans 13 and say, well, if the government says to abuse migrant children at the border, you better do it as Christians because obey the authorities. And in, uh, as many people know, there were unfortunately many Christians, including Christian theologians who went right along with, mm. with Hitler and Nazi Germany, quoted Romans 13, as did Hitler. Mm. Yeah, and, and that leads, Richard Hayes, Christian scholar as well says, regarding Romans 12, that there's not a syllable in the Pauline letters that can be used in support of, employ of Christians employing violence. Can you elaborate on that? I think we've already discussed it, but kind of just finish the conversation then with that. Well, I think it's important to, to continue with Romans 13 for a moment and to, to connect to that. The implication there would be, even though most Christians have read Romans 13 to say, well, therefore, if, if I'm called to kill on behalf of my government, whether it's corporal punishment, capital punishment, or war, or whatever, then I'm obliged to do that. And, and Paul would say, wait a minute, your first obligation is to love, to even love your enemy. That happens to be right there in the context of Romans 13, 1 to 7. And uh, to give, as I've already said many times, give yourself and your body over to the service of God, putting, as Romans 6 says, putting your body at God's disposal, the members of your body as weapons of righteousness or weapons of justice, weapons of God's activity in the world. And that's, that's critical to what it means to live, as Richard was, is arguing, and I have argued as well, in ways that uh, reject rather than embrace violence. And this really kind of gets back to the word of power, that word power again, right? Because what happens so often is we have this power, we want to hold on to this power, we don't realize that this power is actually corrupting and that it's this fear of, re of relinquishing power that causes us to act in certain ways, whether it's suppression of women or whether it's suppression of minorities or whether it's suppression of people of color. Uh, we're holding onto this power. And yet, and I think the point then of this whole conversation is that the cruciform teachings of the gospel of, of, of the entire New Testament is, no, we sacrifice that for the sake of the other because what true power looks like actually is loving the other. More, more than oneself. Yeah. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about the role of suffering then. Um, you note that suffering is an absolute necessary component of cruciform living. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think there I'm simply uh, channeling Paul again and, and Jesus that the life, the life of the gospel is always going to come into confrontation with the powers that be. 
They may be religious powers, they may be political powers, they may be other kinds of powers. Sometimes that will mean a faithful witness is um, going to lead to literal suffering, whether it's um, mental, psychological, economic, and sometimes physical, and sometimes even lethal. Now, that said, all as, as Paul says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right. So whenever I quote that verse, my students will often say, so that means if we're not being persecuted, we're not living godly lives, right? I said, if the shoe fits, wear it. Yeah. Um, let's think about that, right? right? So if you think about the reality of, of Christians who are faithful in other parts of the world, whether it's China or Ethiopia, Nigeria, it can go on and on and on suffering and persecution in various forms is inevitable. But I, I wanna go back to the point I made earlier. Cruciformity is not essentially about suffering. Cruciformity is about faith, hope, love, and power in cross-shaped ways. And it's those things right. that lead to, that result in confrontation, opposition, and therefore for the practitioner in various forms of suffering. It, it can be minor, it can be major. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the gospel message is a gospel that's going to, going to bring on suffering because the world's going to reject that. And it's not suffering because you're a jerk. It's not suffering because of, of other reasons. It's just a suffering because you're saying that Jesus is Lord and the, the state's saying, no, Caesar is Lord. And we're not, and if you're going to say Jesus Lord, not Caesar, then, then the consequences are going to come your way. Or even on a practical level, you're saying that uh, we're saying that Jesus is Lord and therefore I'm not. And someone else is going to go, I don't like that. I, I want to be my own Lord. And as a result, I can't handle these Christian witness because it, it goes against the very thing that I'm living for, which is self. Yeah. And it just doesn't have to necessarily be so dramatic yeah. that it, it involves, right. uh, you know, literal martyrdom. I remember when I was a, a young Christian in, in my, one of my first uh, full-time jobs, I was asked to do something that I thought was unethical. And I told my wife, we had just gotten married literally like a month earlier. I told my new wife about it. I prayed about it. And I went back to the boss, assuming I would be fired, saying, I can't do this. And he you know, got all gruff and everything and said, all right, I'll find someone else to do it. And he didn't fire me. <laughs> now, I'm not, I don't think it was right of him to find someone else to do it. But I, as a young man, I, I learned, the young Christian, young, young husband, um, sometimes you have to put economic security on the line to be faithful to your witness and risk the consequences. For me, they there weren't serious consequences, but there could have, I mean, what would have been for us serious consequences unemployment. Yeah. All right. Now let's also address the fact, and you talk about this in your book and you do a good job. One of the criticisms that, that comes about is the fact that women and minorities are often subject to, to abuse. And yeah. when we say the way of suffering is the way of the cross, et cetera, then it, it presents, oh, especially people in power that are used, that are abusing the women or their spouses or whoever it might be. I see this, this is just your role. This is just what you're supposed to do. And even the women or, or the people that are suffering think, oh, this is just the cross that I have to bear. And, and we're not saying that, you're, you're, not, you're oh. not, not at all. No, I think this is where it comes back to that, among, among many other things, comes back to that corporate dimension, communal dimension we were talking about. 
Cruciformity is a communal ethic, a communal spirituality, whether the community is two people and a husband and wife, a family, a church, Christian, whatever. Um, it is how we take care of one another and it only is appropriate and only works if you want to use that pragmatic language. It only works when all parties are in this same mode. And, and so the idea that uh, a particular sort of person, whether it's a child or more, more likely a, um, a woman, is supposed to be the, uh, the victim, if you will, of this power. And therefore she, or we'll say she, is, is somehow embodying what Paul means or Jesus means by cruciformity. No, mm -hmm. now you are simply being treated unjustly. And the person treating you unjustly is not enacting any form of Christian power, but simply practicing injustice or, or evil or whatever we want to call it. I understand, I sympathize, empathize with people who, who therefore want to say, I've had enough about the cross, I've had enough about cross-shaped existence because I'm the, I'm the victim here. Mm -hmm. And, and I understand that. I empathize with it. Yeah. The response to that, however, is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so right. to speak, but to reinterpret what all of this means for, for Christian community. And that it's the most powerful who have to do the most self-giving. It's the male in the dominant role that has to be the most, who thinks he's in the dominant role, who has to be the most selfless and self-giving. Yeah, if we throw this out, the, the way of the cross out, then all we're left with is the ways of the world and the ways of the world is what actually brings oppression and it brings power and power plays and, and, and wars and crimes, etc. So it's, the yeah. cross is the answer, especially, yeah. when, the, especially when the church lives, li lives it out. All right, now, another situation that, that often arises is, especially in a, even in a local church, you have a group, maybe the pastor and, and others, and, and they're, they're practicing cruciformity, they're preaching cruciformity, they're they're exemplifying cruciformity, but then there's others in the church that aren't maybe spiritually as mature or, or just that there's not there. And it, it leaves sometimes opportunities for them to kind of step on the one who's living this cruciform, taking advantage of them. So how do we not live such a cruciform life where we're always so concerned about the, the well-being of the other that we aren't just trampled upon? That's a hard, that's a good question and a hard one to respond to. I think Context is everything. In a church situation, it's the responsibility of the leaders to make sure that that unhealthy kind of situation doesn't persist and um, people are not mistreated because they are attempting to, to live out this, this gospel-shaped um, life. So, you know, if, if the pastor and other leaders are not helping that to happen, I don't know if there's a solution. I, yeah. I, I just don't know. In a family, it's it's a mutual responsibility among the leaders in the family. But oftentimes what happens in a Christian family is, in America at least, and in some other cultures as well, the male gets on this power trip, the husband gets on this power trip, and um, sometimes it takes an intervention from a friend, a pastor, a counselor to say, look, you may not realize it, but you are mistreating, or maybe you do realize it, you think you are exercising your 
uh, husbandly responsibility when in fact you're engaging in some pretty serious mistreatment of your of your wife or your children or your if you're you know in power on a church committee you you think you're exercising your ministry when really what you're doing is exercising your own self-aggrandizement Mm. somebody has to be able and willing to call that out and that that sometimes is very long process and a very hard process right and but that's that exemplifies what love really is because that person needs to be called out it's interesting because you know paul seems to have this these accusations leveled against him you're shameful you're bringing shame you work with your hands you won't take any pay you're not an eloquent speaker you don't do things the way everybody else does it and yet then Paul does go on this lengthy defense of, of his apostolic credentials. And Paul's answer is because the gospel's at stake. If these false teachers lead people astray, they're leading people away from... So there's a point where we need to stand up for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom and the well-being of others and defend the truth of the gospel. But even then, right, there's always that danger that we don't do that in a, in a loving, cruciform type of way. Yeah, it can be... That's very ironic, but it happens. You can try to force people to be cruciform. <laughs> right, right. Force people to be self-giving. It's obviously a contradiction in terms. We yeah. could go on and on about specific examples yeah, of that sure from our own experiences. We, we sure could. So uh, I think this is one of the most significant topics that we can handle and address, as we said at the beginning. I encourage you to get Michael's books and, and read through them. Is, is there... Would you say, Michael, that in particular, what, what's the particular audience that you wrote this book for? I wrote this book for everybody. Okay. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's, e it's an easy read. Right. Um, I, I have been asked on uh, many occasions to, uh, to write a, a kind of lay-oriented book on, on the subject, you know, fewer pages and, and mm -hmm. not as technical, I've not done that. And fortunately, some other people have. So there are good books out there okay. on, on this topic that have built on my work that are, you know, designed more for the, uh, the lay reader and yeah. so forth. But for, for clergy, it's, it's certainly a challenging, but I think a readable book. But I would also encourage pastors to read a book by Tim Gombus, who's another New Testament scholar called Power and Weakness. Hmm. It's a uh, I think that's the title. Okay. Yeah, Power and Weakness, Paul's Transform, Transform Vision for Ministry. I was privileged to write the foreword to that book, but it's a really good understanding of ministry in the cruciform way. Okay, good. And uh, Tim teaches at uh, Cornerstone University up in, I think it's in Michigan. All right, and I'll put that in, we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put the yeah. links to your books in the show notes also. So uh, thanks very much for this. This is probably a conversation that we could go on for a long time with, especially the applications of it. We want to encourage the listeners just to really kind of go back a couple of times and think about this, the reality of our, what does it mean to, to live by taking up our cross and following him, which is just the fundamental call of discipleship in the gospels. But your work has been so helpful for me. And I just want to encourage any past, especially pastors and leaders and teachers in the church to get these resources and use them you know, read through them and then just go through the index and go, okay, I'm teaching on Philippians. Now I'm going to go look up all the references to Philippians and because it's so insightful. I really think this is an absolutely the way that Paul frames his letters and the framing of the new Testament. Uh, and it's so vital uh, as, as you know, Michael, I'm writing a commentary on the book of revelation and I'm titling it a revelational love story 
because I think the solution to the kingdom of uh, redemption of the nations is the sacrificial love uh, of God's people, that when we lay down our lives for the sake of the others, the two witnesses in Revelation 11 in particular, that is what brings about the nations coming to come into Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it's not the story of God's wrath. I'm going to punish you guys unless you repent. As it's like, no, repent, wrath doesn't even work, it says in Revelation 9, right? They, they didn't repent, but they do repent when the God's people live faithful, loving, sacrificial lives. And so the witness of the church or, or the knowledge of that they may know me is at stake. That's right. So thanks for being with us. And I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank Thank you you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.